Chapter Seventeen of the Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gambler by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by C. J. Hogarth. Chapter Seventeen. It is a year and eight months since I last looked at these notes of mine. I do so now only because, being overwhelmed with depression, I wish to distract my mind by reading them through at random. I left them off at the point where I was just going to Hamburg. My God! With what a light heart, comparatively speaking, did I write the concluding lines! Though it may be not so much with a light heart as with a measure of self-confidence and unquenchable hope. At that time had I any doubts of myself? Yet behold me now! Scarcely a year and a half have passed, yet I am in a worse position than the meanest beggar. But what is a beggar? A fig for beggary. I have ruined myself, that is all. Nor is there anything with which I can compare myself. There is no moral which it would be of any use for you to read to me. At the present moment nothing could well be more incongruous than a moral. O oh, you self-satisfied persons who, in your unctuous pride, are forever ready to mouth your maxims! If only you knew how fully I myself comprehend the sordidness of my present state! you would not trouble to wag your tongues at me. What could you say to me that I do not already know? Well, wherein lies my difficulty? It lies in the fact that, by a single turn of a roulette-wheel, everything for me has become changed. Yet, had things befallen otherwise, these moralists would have been among the first—yes, I feel persuaded of it—to approach me with friendly jests and congratulations. Yes they would never have turned from me as they are doing now. A fig for all of them! What am I? I am zero. Nothing. What shall I be to-morrow? I may be risen from the dead and have begun life anew. For still I may discover the man in myself, if only my manhood has not become utterly shattered. I went, I say, to Hamburg, but afterwards went also to Roulettenburg, as well as to Spa, and Baden, in which latter place for a time I acted as valet to a certain rascal of a privy councillor, by name Heinz, who until lately was also my master here. Yes, for five months I lived my life with lackeys. That was just after I had come out of Roulettenburg prison, where I had lain for a small debt which I owed. Out of that prison I was bailed by—by by whom? By Mr. Astley? by Polina? I do not know. At all events the debt was paid to the tune of two hundred thalers, and I sallied forth a free man. But what was I to do with myself? In my dilemma I had recourse to this Heinz, who was a young scapegrace, and the sort of man who could speak and write three languages. At first I acted as his secretary, at a salary of thirty gulden a month but afterwards I became his lackey, for the reason that he could not afford to keep a secretary, only an unpaid servant. I had nothing else to turn to, so I remained with him, and allowed myself to become his flunky. But by stinting myself in meat and drink, I saved, during my five months of service, some seventy gulden, and one evening, when we were at Baden, I told him that I wished to resign my post, and then hastened to betake myself to roulette. Oh, how my heart beat as I did so! 
No, it was not the money that I valued. What I wanted was to make all this mob of Heinz's, hotel proprietors, and fine ladies of Baden talk about me, recount my story, wonder at me, extol my doings, and worship my winnings. True, these were childish fancies and aspirations. But who knows but that I might meet Polina, and be able to tell her everything, and see her look of surprise at the fact that I had overcome so many adverse strokes of fortune. No, I had no desire for money for its own sake, for I was perfectly well aware that I should only squander it upon some new blanche, and spend another three weeks in Paris, after buying a pair of horses which had cost sixteen thousand francs. No, I never believed myself to be a hoarder. In fact, I knew only too well that I was a spendthrift. And already, with a sort of fear, a sort of sinking in my heart, I could hear the cries of the croupiers, trente et un, rouge, impair et passe, court noir, pair et manque. How greedily I gazed upon the gaming-table, with its scattered louis d'or, ten gulden pieces, and thalers upon the streams of gold as they issued from the croupier's hands, and piled themselves up into heaps of gold scintillating as fire, upon the L, long rolls of silver lying around the croupier, even at a distance of two rooms I could hear the chink of that money, so much so that I nearly fell into convulsions. Ah, the evening when I took those seventy gulden to the gaming-table was a memorable one for me. I began by staking ten gulden upon pas. For pas I had always had a sort of predilection, yet I lost my stake upon it. This left me with sixty gulden in silver. After a moment's thought I selected zero, beginning by staking five gulden at a time. Twice I lost, but the third round suddenly brought up the desired coup. I could almost have died with joy as I received my one hundred and seventy-five gulden. Indeed, I have been less pleased when, in former times, I have won a hundred thousand gulden. Losing no time, I staked another hundred gulden upon the red, and won, two hundred upon the red, and won, four hundred upon the black, and won, eight hundred upon manc, and won. Thus, with the addition of the remainder of my original capital, I found myself possessed, within five minutes, of seventeen hundred gulden. Ah! At such moments one forgets both oneself and one's former failures. This I had gained by risking my very life. I had dared so to risk, and, behold, again I was a member of mankind. I went and hired a room. I shut myself up in it, and sat counting my money until three o'clock in the morning, to think that when I awoke on the morrow I was no lackey. I decided to leave at once for Hamburg. There I should neither have to serve as a footman, nor to lie in prison. Half an hour before starting, I went and ventured a couple of stakes, no more, with the result that, in all, I lost fifteen hundred florins. Nevertheless, I proceeded to Hamburg, and have now been there for a month. Of course, I am living in constant trepidation, playing for the smallest of stakes, and always looking out for something, calculating, standing whole days by the gaming-tables to watch the play even seeing that play in my dreams, yet seeming, the while, to be in some way stiffening, to be growing caked, as it were, in mire. But I must conclude my notes, which I finish under the impression of a recent encounter with Mr. Astley. I had not seen him since we parted at Roulettenburg, and now we met quite by accident. At the time I was walking in the public gardens, and meditating upon the fact 
that not only had I still some fifty olden in my possession, but also I had fully paid up my hotel bill three days ago. Consequently I was in a position to try my luck again at roulette. And if I won anything I should be able to continue my play, whereas if I lost what I now possessed I should once more have to accept a lackey's place, provided that, in the alternative, I failed to discover a Russian family which stood in need of a tutor. Plunged in these reflections, I started on my daily walk through the park and forest towards a neighboring principality. Sometimes, on such occasions, I spent four hours on the way, and would return to Hamburg tired and hungry. But on this particular occasion I had scarcely left the gardens for the park when I caught sight of Astley, seated on a bench. As soon as he perceived me, he called me by name, and I went and sat down beside him. But on noticing that he seemed a little stiff in his manner, I hastened to moderate the expression of joy which the sight of him had called forth. "'You here?' he said. "'Well, I had an idea that I should meet you. Do not trouble to tell me anything, for I know all—yes, all. In fact, your whole life during the past twenty months lies within my knowledge.' "'How closely you watch the doings of your old friends,' I replied. "'That does you infinite credit. But stop a moment. You have reminded me of something. Was it you who bailed me out of Roulettenburg prison when I was lying there for a debt of two hundred gulden? Someone did so.' "'Oh, dear, no. Though I knew all the time that you were lying there.' "'Perhaps you could tell me who did bail me out.' "'No. I'm afraid I could not. What a strange thing! For I know no Russians at all here, so it cannot have been a Russian who befriended me. In Russia we Orthodox folk do go bail for one another, but in this case I thought it must have been done by some English stranger who was not conversant with the ways of the country." Mr. Astley seemed to listen to me with a sort of surprise. Evidently he had expected to see me looking more crushed and broken than I was. "'Well,' he said, not very pleasantly. I am none the less glad to find that you retain your old independence of spirit, as well as your buoyancy. Which means that you are vexed at not having found me more abased and humiliated than I am," I retorted with a smile. Astley was not quick to understand this, but presently did so and laughed. "'Your remarks please me as they always did,' he continued. In those words I see the clever, triumphant, and above all things cynical friend of former days. Only Russians have the faculty of combining within themselves so many opposite qualities. Yes, most men love to see their best friend in abasement, for generally it is on such abasement that friendship is founded. All thinking persons know that ancient truth. Yet on the present occasion, I assure you, I am sincerely glad to see that you are not cast down. Tell me, are you never going to give up gambling? Damn the gambling! Yes, I should certainly have given it up, were it not that—that you are losing? I thought so. You need not tell me any more. I know how things stand, for you have said that last in despair, and therefore truthfully. Have you no other employment than gambling? No. None whatever." Astley gave me a searching glance. At that time it was ages since I had last looked at a paper or turned the pages of a book. You are growing blasé, he said. You have not only renounced life with its interests and social ties, but the duties of a citizen and a man. You have not only renounced the friends whom I know you to have had, 
and every aim in life but that of winning money, but you have also renounced your memory. Though I can remember you in the strong, ardent period of your life, I feel persuaded that you have now forgotten every better feeling of that period, that your present dreams and aspirations of subsistence do not rise above pear, impair, rouge, noir, the twelve middle numbers, and so forth. "'Enough, Mr. Astley,' I cried with some irritation, almost in anger. "'Kindly do not recall to me any more recollections, for I can remember things for myself. Only for a time have I put them out of my head. Only until I shall have rehabilitated myself am I keeping my memory dulled. When that hour shall come, you will see me arise from the dead.' "'Then you will have to be here another ten years,' he replied. Should I then be alive, I will remind you, here on this very bench, of what I have just said. In fact, I will bet you a wager that I shall do so. Say no more, I interrupted impatiently, and to show you that I have not wholly forgotten the past, may I inquire where Mademoiselle Polina is? If it was not you who bailed me out of prison, it must have been she. Yet never have I heard a word concerning her. No, I do not think it was she. At the present moment she is in Switzerland and you will do me a favour by ceasing to ask me these questions about her." Astley said this with a firm and even an angry air. "'Which means that she has dealt you a serious wound?' I burst out with an involuntary sneer. "'Mademoiselle Polina,' he continued, "'is the best of all possible living beings. But I repeat that I shall thank you to cease questioning me about her. You never really knew her and her name on your lips is an offence to my moral feeling. Indeed! On what subject, then, have I a better right to speak to you than on this? With it are bound up all your recollections and mine. However, do not be alarmed. I have no wish to probe too far into your private, your secret affairs. My interest in Mademoiselle Polina does not extend beyond her outward circumstances and surroundings. About them you could tell me in two words. Well. On condition that the matter shall end there, I will tell you that for a long time Mademoiselle Polina was ill, and still is so. My mother and sister entertained her for a while at their home in the north of England, and thereafter Mademoiselle Polina's grandmother—you remember the mad old woman—died, and left Mademoiselle Polina a personal legacy of seven thousand pounds sterling. That was about six months ago, and now Mademoiselle is travelling with my sister's family, my sister having since married. Mademoiselle's little brother and sister also benefited by the grandmother's will, and are now being educated in London. As for the general, he died in Paris last month of a stroke. Mademoiselle Blanche did well by him, for she succeeded in having transferred to herself all that he received from the grandmother. That, I think, concludes all that I have to tell. And de Griers? Is he too travelling in Switzerland? No. Nor do I know where he is. Also, I warn you once more that you had better avoid such hints and ignoble suppositions. Otherwise you will assuredly have to reckon with me." "'What, in spite of our old friendship?' "'Yes, in spite of our old friendship.' "'Then I beg your pardon a thousand times, Mr. Astley. I meant nothing offensive to Mademoiselle Polina, for I have nothing of which to accuse her. Moreover. The question of there being anything between this Frenchman and this Russian lady is not one which you and I need discuss, nor even attempt to understand. 
if replied astley you do not care to hear their names coupled together may i ask you what you mean by the expressions this frenchman this russian lady and there being anything between them why do you call them so particularly a frenchman and a russian lady ah i see you are interested mr astley but it is a long long story and calls for a lengthy preface at the same time the question is an important one however ridiculous it may seem at the first glance a frenchman mr astley is merely a fine figure of a man with this you as a britisher may not agree with it i also as a russian may not agree out of envy yet possibly our good ladies are of another opinion for instance one may look upon racine as a broken-down hobbledehoy perfumed individual one may even be unable to read him and i too may think him the same as well as in some respects a subject for ridicule yet about him mr astley there is a certain charm and above all things he is a great poet though one might like to deny it yes the frenchman the parisian as a national figure was in process of developing into a figure of elegance before we russians had even ceased to be bears the revolution bequeathed to the french nobility its heritage and now every whippersnapper of a parisian may possess manners methods of expression and even thoughts that are above reproach in form while all the time he himself may share in that form neither in initiative nor in intellect nor in soul his manners and the rest having come to him through inheritance yes taken by himself the frenchman is frequently a fool of fools and a villain of villains per contra there is no one in the world more worthy of confidence and respect than this young russian lady de griers might so mask his face and play a part as easily to overcome her heart for he has an imposing figure mr astley and this young lady might easily take that figure for his real self for the natural form of his heart and soul instead of the mere cloak with which heredity has dowered him and even though it may offend you i feel bound to say that the majority also of english people are uncouth and unrefined whereas we russian folk can recognize beauty wherever we see it and are always eager to cultivate the same but to distinguish beauty of soul and personal originality there is needed far more independence and freedom than is possessed by our women especially by our younger ladies at all events they need more experience for instance this mademoiselle polina pardon me but the name has passed my lips and i cannot well recall it is taking a very long time to make up her mind to prefer you to monsieur de griers she may respect you she may become your friend she may open out her heart to you yet over that heart there will be reigning that loathsome villain that mean and petty usurer de griers this will be due to obstinacy and self-love to the fact that de griers once appeared to her in the transfigured guise of a marquis of a disenchanted and ruined liberal who was doing his best to help her family and the frivolous old general and although these transactions of his have since been exposed you will find that the exposure has made no impression upon her mind only give her the de griers of former days and she will ask of you no more the more she may detest the present de griers the more she will lament the de griers of the past even though the latter never existed but in her own imagination you are a sugar refiner mr astley are you not yes i belong to the well-known firm of lovell and company then see here on the one hand you are a sugar refiner 
while on the other hand you are an Apollo Belvedere. But the two characters do not mix with one another. I, again, am not even a sugar refiner. I am a mere roulette gambler who has also served as a lackey. Of this fact Mademoiselle Polina is probably well aware, since she appears to have an excellent force of police at her disposal. "'You are saying this because you are feeling bitter,' said Astley, with cold indifference. "'Yet there is not the least originality in your words.' "'I agree. But therein lies the horror of it all. That how trepidation, playing ever mean and farcical my accusations may be, they are none the less true. But I am only wasting words. Yes, you are. For you are only talking nonsense," exclaimed my companion, his voice now trembling, and his eyes flashing fire. Are you aware, he continued, that wretched, ignoble, petty, unfortunate man though you are, it was at her request that I came to Hamburg, in order to see you, and to have a long, serious talk with you, and to report to her your feelings and thoughts and hopes? Yes and your recollections of her, too?" "'Indeed. Is that really so?' I cried, the tears beginning to well from my eyes. Never before had this happened." "'Yes, poor unfortunate,' continued Astley. She did love you. And I may tell you this now for the reason that now you are utterly lost. Even if I were also to tell you that she still loves you, you would none the less have to remain where you are. Yes, you have ruined yourself beyond redemption. Once upon a time you had a certain amount of talent, and you were of a lively disposition, and your good looks were not to be despised. You might even have been useful to your country, which needs men like you. Yet you remained here, and your life is now over. I am not blaming you for this. In my view all Russians resemble you, or are inclined to do so. If it is not roulette, then it is something else. The exceptions are very rare nor are you the first to learn what a taskmaster is yours. For roulette is not exclusively a Russian game. Hitherto you have honorably preferred to serve as a lackey rather than to act as a thief. But what the future may have in store for you I tremble to think. Now good-bye. You are in want of money, I suppose? Then take these ten louis d'or. More I shall not give you, for you would only gamble it away. Take care of these coins, and farewell. Once more, take care of them." "'No, Mr. Astley, after all that has been said, I—' "'Take care of them,' repeated my friend. I am certain you are still a gentleman, and therefore I give you the money as one gentleman may give money to another. Also, if I could be certain that you would leave both Hamburg and the gaming-tables and return to your own country, I would give you a thousand pounds down to start life afresh but I give you ten louis d'or instead of a thousand pounds, for the reason that at the present time a thousand pounds and ten louis d'or will be all the same to you. You will lose the one as readily as you will the other. Take the money, therefore, and good-bye. Yes, I will take it, if at the same time you will embrace me. With pleasure. So we parted, on terms of sincere affection. But he was wrong. If I was hard and undiscerning as regards Polina and de Griers, he was hard and undiscerning as regards Russian people generally. Of myself I say nothing. Yet, yet words are only words. I need to act. Above all things I need to think of Switzerland. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Ah, but if only I could set things right tomorrow and be born again, 
and rise again from the dead. But no, I cannot. Yet I must show her what I can do. Even if she should do no more than learn that I can still play the man, it would be worth it. Today it is too late, but to-morrow. Yet I have a presentiment that things can never be otherwise. I have got fifteen louis d'or in my possession, although I began with fifteen gulden. If I were to play carefully at the start. But no, no, surely I am not such a fool as that. Yet why should I not rise from the dead? I should require at first but to go cautiously and patiently, and the rest would follow. I should require but to put a check upon my nature for one hour, and my fortunes would be changed entirely. Yes, my nature is my weak point. I have only to remember what happened to me some months ago at Roulettenburg, before my final ruin. What a notable instance that was of my capacity for resolution! On the occasion in question I had lost everything. Everything! Yet just as I was leaving the casino I heard another Goulden give a rattle in my pocket. Perhaps I shall need it for a meal, I thought to myself. But a hundred paces further on I changed my mind, and returned. That Goulden I staked upon Monk, and there is something in the feeling that, though one is alone and in a foreign land, and far from one's own home and friends, and ignorant of whence one's next meal is to come, one is nevertheless staking one's very last coin. Well, I won the stake, and in twenty minutes had left the casino with a hundred and seventy gulden in my pocket. That is a fact, and it shows what a last remaining gulden can do. But what if my heart had failed me, or I had shrunk from making up my mind? No. Tomorrow all shall be ended. End of chapter 17 and End of the Gambler by Fyodor Dostoevsky Recording by Bill Borst